The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In chapter 53, the story begins with a hex crawl that sees the party cover a good number of miles on the return trip to Thangar, and also produces the first ever result with the stumble upon roll. After thinking it through, I decided that the party would find an especially beautiful natural sanctuary, and also a treasure to be determined at random. A few dice rolls later, Eridine is in the possession of a beautiful elven sword. It is non-magical, but that does not mean it isn't special. I wonder who it belonged to, and what is written along the blade. I suppose we won't know until Eredine meets someone who can read Elvish. Finally, in a flashback to just over a week ago, we follow Ursuleth as she goes off in search of answers and excitement. She definitely finds the latter, but tragically, in a way, she finds the former, too. The party reluctantly leaves their perfect little sanctuary on the morning of day 68. They are halfway through the foothills and have one more day to go before they re-enter the mountain range and begin the home stretch that will take them two more days. Let's see how things play out for these three days. As usual, I'll roll for weather, stumble upon, and wandering encounters. For day 68, the last day in the foothills. Weather. A five. Once they leave the sanctuary, the spell seems to be broken. They're back in the real world, and the real world is not always so lovely. Conditions are gray and dreary on day 68. Stumble upon. A one. (laughs) Well, that was very unexpected. After months of no result on this roll, now I get two in a row. One good and one bad. Okay, I'll just make the wandering encounters roll before deciding to take a break and to decide what this looks like. If an encounter is indicated, it might be that the two events are related the roll. A five. No, this is something different. Chapter 54, part one. Day 68, early evening. Party status. Harl, 26 of 26 hit points. Gyrios, 33 of 33. Eridine, 18 of 18. Umura, 23 of 23. Grumblebelly, 11 of 11. Raydell, 16 of 16. Spells available. Umura has memorized. Charm Person. Shield. 
Levitate, Knock, and Lightning Bolt. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds, times two, Hold Person, and Bless. Grumblebelly has memorized Detect Magic, and Protection from Evil. The skies threatened to put an end to their high spirits as they continued their journey to the west towards Thangar, and by late afternoon, one by one, they had fallen silent. It was impossible to hold on to the cheery lightness of the previous day's respite. Even Grumblebelly's complaints died off. It was just about the time that the sun began to dip in the sky while they were skirting a grove of fir trees that Raydel pointed at something in the distance. Look over there, Aradine. Aradine squinted in the direction he indicated and then looked at the ranger quizzically, as if to ask if they were seeing the same thing. As one, they drew their bows. This was enough to alert the rest of the party of potential danger, and they all drew their weapons. Aradine and Raydel took the lead as the group cautiously approached a hill, mostly covered in yellow grass. A few gnarled trees grew upon its surface, and even from this distance they could see little white shapes dangling from the branches. It was too far to see what they were, however. A single, larger tree of the same species grew straight out of the top of the hill. It too was twisted, and its branches corkscrewed in woody coils. There was a figure in front of the tree. At first they thought it was standing or leaning with its back to the trunk, but as they drew closer, they discerned that the figure was instead bound to the tree. Rough rope had been lashed around its waist, elbows, and legs. The figure was humanoid, but not human. Coming closer still, they heard strange, hollow rattling sounds. It quickly became apparent that the sound came from the things dangling from the tree branches. They were now only 80 feet away, taking cover behind some thick fir trees whose bulk hid their forms and whose fallen needles muffled their steps. While the others took cover, Raydell and Aradine peered out between the sharply sweet-smelling needles and pine cones to get a better look. When Aradine pulled back into cover to report, she whispered to her companions that the noise was coming from a collection of animal skulls that were hanging in the trees. The being tied to the tree was a hobgoblin, she was sure of that. She thought it looked a lot like the one Umora had enthralled several days before. Just then, Raydell pulled back into cover and rejoined the group. He repeated everything Aradine had said. He also added that the creature was still breathing, and that it was covered in all kinds of strange markings. The hanging skulls, he noticed, were ringed around it in a circle. Furthermore, he too thought that it looked like the one Umura had charmed. He explained the scene thusly. As you know, goblin tribes are led by the colony's biggest member, a brute. But hobgoblins organize themselves quite differently. They tend to follow a shaman and these shamans are far more dangerous than the goblin brutes. Do you think that goblin is being sacrificed? asked Gyrios, looking uneasy. I doubt it, Umura replied. Consider. When they found him, he must have come across as very confused, even possessed. They are probably performing some kind of ritual, to purge him of whatever spirit they believe has a hold on him. Umura rubbed her chin. I wonder. Are these shamans powerful enough to break my spell? It would appear that this one is at least trying to, yes, offered Harl. Something like that, Umura frowned deeply. Something that strong and wicked needs to be hunted down and killed, she declared. Let's not be rash, Umura. We should think this through. Harl patted the air with his free hand, urging her to be calm and quiet. There's nothing to think over, flared Umura, crossing her arms over her chest. Eridine, you have no love for these creatures. I'm sure even Gyrios will agree with me for once. Gyrios furrowed his brow in reply. 
As for Raydell and Grumblebelly, by now they looked decidedly uncomfortable. Neither of them had fond memories of their last encounter with the Hobgoblins, and Umora seemed to be suggesting that they take on the entire tribe. That might be a lot of Hobgoblins. And on top of that, they would have to deal with some kind of witch thing. It wasn't very appealing. Harl and Eredin were of the opinion that there was no real upside to hunting down hobgoblins, but Gyrios was torn. As a boy, he had promised Mazigar that he would fight the disciples of Ophion. Well, here was a chance to do exactly that. On the other hand, the last encounter with these creatures had almost cost him his life. While Gyrios was trying to figure out where he stood, Eredin shook her head and slung her bow over her shoulder, indicating that she had decided not to fight. Harl followed suit, returning his axe to its holder on his back. Are you serious? asked Umora. She glared at her two companions, then at Gyrios, who had not yet stated his position. And what do you say, Sword of Mazagar? It is not an easy choice, but now is not the time, Umora. We need to get back to Thangar to tell Chief Augerstone about the horn. Beyond that, we do not have the right to delay Harl from returning to Dwarvar. There is simply too much to lose if we fail. The cleric held out his hands imploringly. But Umura just curled her lip. Fine, wait here, she said. Before they could reply, she marched out of their spot in the pines toward the figure on the hill. Five minutes later, she returned, wiping blood from her knife. That's one less, anyway. The 20 I rolled on the previous stumble upon check gave the party something good, a precious and unique sword. But that last one on the die took something away. Harmony. Umura is the type to hold a grudge, and she isn't going to forget this anytime soon. Well, with that unpleasant business out of the way, it looks like we are back to a hex crawl. The next day is day 69. On this day, the party re-enters the Kazmirioth. Weather. A 19. Umura may be chilly, but this day is beautiful and warm. The weather is so clear that by early evening they can see the watchtowers of Thangar's southern perimeter. Stumble upon. A six. For once, I am relieved to see there is no result here. Wandering encounters. A two. There are none. For day 70, I will remove the stumble upon and random encounter rolls as the party approaches and then crosses into Thangar's borders. Weather. A twenty. It is a glorious day, so beautiful that even Umura lightens up a bit as the hours pass in comfort and optimism swells in the companions' hearts. Despite being exhausted from their many days' march, they find themselves picking up the pace in eager anticipation of the comforts ahead. Conversations turn to the happy things in store for them. Sleeping in a good bed. Drinking a dark ale in the troll. Buying some new clothes and shoes. Even taking a long, hot bath. Sailor, yes, I'm talking to you. Do you yearn for high seas adventure and piratical mayhem at the roll of a D20? Yes, 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 I'll just toss you your shirt. Very sassy. <laughs> no, I drink beer and I fart in my sleep. <laughs> now that I've got your attention with sex. <laughs> Welcome to my pub, the wizard's sleeve. <laughs> it's still a cow, they're gonna get in a bag. Do you know just, how big I'm a just cow gonna... is? <laughs> Don't put gold in your ass. <laughs> Uh, that's not um, the catchphrase we were looking for. It is one that we often use at the <laughs> Enough though. about where you keep your secret stuff. 
It's not right. in my anus. Stop it. <laughs> and sign your name in blood. I mean, join the rovers on your crew on their adventures every Wednesday, wherever you find podcasts. Chapter 54, Part 2, Day 70, Late Afternoon. Party Status. The party status is unchanged. Something about the fairness of the weather made Umura put her anger aside, at least for a while. The sorceress was jovial, practically flirting with the grumblebelly as she spent the last few miles on the way back to Thangar, trying to squeeze a little more information from the dwarf. They were in the middle of a conversation that Grumblebelly wanted to escape. So then, what would happen if an artificer used a lesser gem in the binding process? She wanted to know. This question again? Can't we talk about something else? This line of conversation is making me very uncomfortable, Amura. I've already said far too much, you know. Oh, come, come, chided the sorceress with a wry smile. I'm just being curious. Look at me, I'm an open book. Ask me anything you want to know. It's not the dwarven way to share so much, Amura. The artificer looked up with his brow creased in frustration and annoyance. Just one little question and I'll let you alone. Come on, Baiyun. Using his real name seemed to do the trick, or perhaps she had just worn him down, but Grumblebelly's reluctance was finally overcome. The senior dwarf rolled his eyes, sighed, and made his reply. Oh, very well. Using a lesser gem heightens the risk. Not having the proper training heightens the risk. Constantly asking irritating questions and pushing a poor dwarf to the limits heightens the risk. Does that answer your question? Yes, that will do. Thank you, Grumblebelly. <laughs> I'm going to need two drinks just to calm down when we get back home. A drink is a wonderful idea, Grumblebelly. I, for one, could use a cup of beer. Let's all go for a drink when we get back, hmm? Offered Harl. I'm buying. Shouldn't we first go and speak with Chief Augustone and pay a visit to Ursuleth? Asked Gyrios. We'll do both, but I think we should enjoy a rest first. We've certainly earned it. We'll pay a visit to the palace after we've refreshed ourselves. Behold, the gates of Tangar, said Raydel, right on cue. Just a half a mile ahead was the end of their long journey. I'll take you up on that drink, dwarf. Ten minutes later, they crossed the threshold into the citadel proper, but the return to Thangar was not as they had expected, and it was not what they had hoped for. If Thangar had been quiet the last time they passed through, now it was forlorn. It had a mausoleum-like quality, nearly silent and devoid of life. Many homes and businesses had their windows shuttered, and the streets and usually teeming marketplace were practically empty. It was like a ghost town. One of the only signs of life they saw was the light coming from the dead troll tavern. Seeing as that was their destination anyway, they made straight for it. Inside, there were few people, few but at least some. The troll could seat 100. Presently, it held no more than a dozen patrons. The entire serving staff had obviously been sent home. Garrett Magger's ugly wife was the only visible server, and even she was just leaning against the bar, looking bored. When the companions walked through the door, she looked up hopefully, as did a pair of scruffy Heflin bards, easily identifiable by the harps on their laps. A quartet of Sachori men in the corner took brief interest in Raydell, but then went back to their low-voiced conversation. The rest of the patrons were older dwarves, all of them deep in their cups, some of them passed out on the tables. 
There was a slightly desperate look to the Heflin bards behind their smiles when one of them called out, You all look like you've been out in the wilds. Come join our table and talk. And if you care to cross our palms with silver, we'll be happy to play you a tune. We'll gladly join you. And we can do better than a couple of silver coins. Give us a song, and then join us for food and drink, if it pleases you. Harl was hoping he could find out what had happened in Thangar, and knew that the best way to a Heflin's heart was through their belly. By all means, by all means, came the reply. You all sit in the middle, and we shall sit to either end. It's the best way to listen. The best seats in the house. She continued to speak while the companions arranged themselves at the low table. My name's Willa, by the way, and this is my sister, Maul. We're from Knobs Creek. Do you know it? Indeed we do, Willa. Our acquaintance, Norm Smallborough, lives there with his wife, Massey, and their children, Mason and Katya. Well, well, well. Willa looked impressed. Isn't that something? How about that tune? Said Harl with a rare smile. And then we can eat and talk. As you wish, Master Dwarf. Now prepare your ears for a treat, for you've not heard the harp played proper until you've heard it played by Willa and Maul Sweetgrass. Ready, Maul? Let's begin. After the performance and requisite applause, Harl ordered dishes of steamed mushrooms, fried onions, and kidney pottage. The meal came with a loaf of crusty sourdough bread and large mugs of black stout. It was rich and delicious. They talked as they ate. Business has been bad. (laughs) Terrible, actually, said Willa, stating the obvious. There's no customers, and no customers means no patrons. Mistress Magger allows us to sleep in the kitchen since we help her with the cleaning. If it weren't for her, we'd have gone back to Knobs Creek a week ago. Are all the soldiers still down in the mine? Mm-hmm. Almost three weeks now. Boehner himself went in with his elite guard, and Ringlock has sent rescue party after rescue party since then. And no one has returned? Inquired Harl, his beard covered in beer froth. No one. It doesn't look good. All the workers, merchants, and, well, everyone else mostly stays indoors now. Ringlock even imposed a curfew. Harl sighed, his chances for getting any help in Dwarvar having evaporated. So nobody really knows what's down there. When the miners evacuated, they said the tunnels had been breached by... Delibral. I'm not sure what those are called in the common tongue. Enkeg, supplied Harl. Nasty creatures. There's lots of rumors going on around what's down there, among other crazy notions. Like what? asked Yumura. Oh, the usual nonsense. I heard one person say that the upper mines have collapsed. Someone else said Boehner's young ward had been seen going into the mines. What? Harl spat. What did you say? Uh, what's her name? Uh, the girl they rescued in the mountains early in the summer. Uh, something Stonecutter. Ursula Stonecarver? Yes! Maybe. 
That might be it. As I say, it's just a stupid rumor. Harl was out of his chair before the Heflin finished her sentence and out the door moments after. He made straight for the palace, which was practically deserted. He entered unchecked as there were no guards around to prevent his intrusion. Holgner Ringlock was in his private room when Harl barged in and put the question to him directly. Equally startled and terrified, Ringlock confirmed that the girl was missing. Harl swore up a storm, called Ringlock several colorful names that he would later regret, and then marched all the way back to the troll to share the bad news. I'm going in. Of course, I don't expect any of you to come with me. It won't be dangerous. Harl, said Gyrios, standing up. That is exactly why we're coming with you. Eridine stood up too. Umura hesitated, but just for a fraction of a second, before she stood up as well. We can assume that both Grumblebelly and Raydel have, at some point during their time with the PCs, heard the story of Ursulith and the party's ultimately successful efforts to bring her to Thangar from Dwervar. But just because they know the story, that doesn't mean they would volunteer to help find her, especially given the obvious danger of the mission. Furthermore, their contract is undeniably fulfilled. Their job is done. I'll make a pair of reaction rolls to see if they've formed some kind of exceptional loyalty to the party, but I think that, realistically, the chances are so low that only a roll of 12 on 2d6 would indicate such an attachment. Here are the rolls. For Grumblebelly. A five. For Raydel, a seven. Neither of them wishes to accompany the party. Instead, they say their goodbyes and go their own way. Holgner Ringlock prepaid for their service, and the party has already given Grumblebelly his share of the rubies they found. Of course, Grumblebelly managed to come away with a little extra in the form of two perfect bloodstones, but that's a secret he's keeping to himself. So that just leaves the 91 GP in mixed coins from the Hobgoblins to be divided six ways. Call it 16 gold pieces apiece. Harl wonders why Grumblebelly looks so sheepish when he takes his share, but chalks it up to good manners. I'll deduct 8 gold pieces for their meal. I can't forget the two silver coins for the song, too. Money well spent, I think. Updated character inventories will be posted on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com shortly after the release of this episode, if you'd like to take a look. Now, having paid the bards for their song, Mistress Magger for the meal, and their retainers for the help, the four companions make for the entrance of Thangar's famous silver mine. They only hoped they would not be too late. Dramatis Personae Nog Shattershield Four days ago He had howled himself hoarse, and now he could only whimper. His tongue felt overlarge in his mouth. He had lost a lot of blood, but not enough. The pain was unbearable. He should be dead. He wished he were. The cut in his thigh alone went at least to the bone. To tell the truth, he couldn't feel his knee or his foot. He wondered if they were even still attached. But what did it matter? He was as good as dead. If the creature had not fallen upon him, he would have bled out days ago. The enormous weight of the thing's carapace pinned him down, and in doing so, had also somehow stopped the bleeding. And so he was doomed to lie here in agony, slipping in and out of consciousness until he died of thirst. A strange notion crossed his semi-lucid mind. 
Mokul, his best friend, had dubbed him the thirstiest dwarf in Thangar on account of his ability to outdrink anyone. Nog turned his head slightly and saw what was left of Mokul lying in meaty chunks on the tunnel floor. Mokul's sword was just out of reach. Honor be damned, if Nog could have reached it and ended his own life, he would have. The thirstiest dwarf in Thangar. Nog laughed a little on the inside, but all that came out was a cough. Another wave of pain. Oh, how he envied the dead. If he had fallen first, he would be in the Grey Halls now. But that is not how events had played out. They had hacked away at the monster while it ripped through their numbers, lopping off limbs and making hot dwarven blood rain down over them. He had been the last dwarf standing, and they had made their final blows simultaneously, crashing into each other with a shared final burst of energy. The worst part was the hopelessness. His party had been the last of the soldiers to go in. No one was coming who could put an end to his suffering. He wondered if the pain would drive him mad before he died. Oh, what he would give for a drink of water. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. That was a dark ending, even for the day after Halloween. But if you have enjoyed this episode, there are now four ways to lend your support to the show. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can purchase my rules ultralight RPG called One Shot in the Dark for a buck fifty on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My sincere thanks to everyone who has done any of the above. I'd like to read a review from the Podbean app today. This one is from a user named David who has a Boba Fett avatar. David writes, You must give this a listen. Unlike any other real play podcast, this one is not a joke fest, but real drama, satisfying my sword and sorcery sweet tooth. Thanks for taking the time to write that review, David. I'll be making these dark fantasy confections for a long time to come, I hope. And I'm glad to hear I'm not alone in my taste for actual play that isn't comedy focused. My thanks also goes out to my cast of voice actors. Completing his extended role as the artificer Grumblebelly is James Schrall of the podcast Subclass Act. Also finishing his long stint as Raydell the Sashori Ranger is Bruno of the Crimson Hound YouTube channel. James and Bruno have volunteered their time over a span of several months, and the show is much richer for their contribution. Thank you both so very much. Also, there's a new voice in the mix playing Willa, the Heflin Bard, I'd like to welcome Lauren Hottinger of the Intelligence Check podcast. Follow them on Twitter at IntelCheckDND. You do great work, Lauren. Thank you so much for being part of the show. My own Twitter handle is at ManticoreTale, and I'm on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is TaleOfTheManticore at gmail.com. Reach out and say hi. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. A new god, a dead king, and a world of consequences. 
Welcome to Seasons of Skyrend. I am your host and DM, Scott. Join our D&D adventures every week as we explore the world of Skyrend. We focus on the stories of our characters as they come to grips with their impact on the world and uncover secrets long since hidden. The machinations of gods and governments loom large against our party, but the only way to know what comes next is to adventure on. You can join the rebellion with Seasons of Skyrend, available wherever podcasts are found, and on Twitter at Skyrend Podcast, where the story will always continue.